All right, so if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 13. If you're visiting with us, uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of John for a while now. We've been going uh, chapter by chapter, and um, we have made it all the way to John 13. And that's where I will be preaching from today. John 13, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. When he had poured water, or then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. That is the word of the Lord. Amen. So when I think about God's grace, it's a, it's, a, it's a topic that just really lingers in my mind, and I think that's true for um, everybody. It is a, an enormous thing to really think about. Um, one thing that comes to mind is the song Amazing Grace. That's the song that comes to mind, and um, just because I'm going to have grace upon you, I will not sing it to you, but I do want to, uh, I do want to read the lyrics to it because it's a beautiful song. Uh, it says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. The Lord hath promised good to me, his word my hope secures, he will my, he will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we know no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I just love that song, and, you know, it's a classic because, you know, I think everybody loves that song as it speaks about God's grace, and it just it hits a chord in us, right? Uh, it, it strikes at our heart knowing how good God is and um, how he saved sinners like us. And that is just a glimpse of God's grace. So when we think about it, it's just, it, it is true, God's grace is amazing. That's the title of the sermon, Amazing Grace. And obviously I got it from the song, but it, when, you, when you think of his grace, the word you think about is amazing. Amazing is one of those words that you just... You, you, you look at something and you're in all of it. It's just like, wow, you know, you just, you, you can't describe it. You can't think about it fully. You can't fully understand it. You can't grasp it. You just know it is something very special. And that's what God's grace is. Something wonderful, something very uh, special, something that we ourselves cannot comprehend. Not fully, not on this side of heaven, but maybe some of those Questions will be answered for us on the other side. But what's amazing about his grace is that 
it's not only it's not only out of this world, it's not only above us, beyond us, but it's constant. God's grace is constantly in our lives. The Bible says that man in his heart man plans his ways, but it is the Lord who directs his steps. There are so many there are so many choices that if it were not for God, I'd be in a lot of trouble. His grace is always before us. Always. You know, there's times when we pass by his grace. And what I mean by that is we pass by his providence at work in our lives and and he is doing something in our lives. He is working things out according to his good and pleasing will. And we pass right by it and we don't even recognize that his grace is present at that at that time. That's how that's how amazing it is. It's so amazing that we pass by it sometimes and don't recognize it. But when we look at this passage, that's what this passage is really about. You know, we may look at the, the Jesus washing the disciples' feet and we may say, well, that, man, that's a great example of service. It's a great example of service. Or we may say, man, that's a great example of love. And I would agree with both of those. It is a great example of service and it is a great example of love. But let me tell you what it is mostly. It is mostly a great example of God's grace to a sinful people. That is what it primarily is. That's why, you know, when John Newton wrote the song Amazing Grace, the, the the part of the song that gets me is whenever he talks about there are many dangers, toils, and snares, and grace will lead us safely home. There are different variations of the song, but that's one of the parts of the songs that just really always gets me, reminds me that, yes, God's grace is amazing. It's constantly there before me, and, and, and what God started in me, he's going to finish it. He's going to finish it, and he will take us home. That's his covenant promise to Um, his covenant children. And our passage today is a great and wonderful reminder of that. This foot washing that Jesus performs uh, for the disciples is a clear illustration of the profoundness of God's grace to a sinful people. So let's, let's, uh, let's look at the passage itself. I want to look at basically three different things within this passage. First of all, I want to look at verse 2. And verse 2 shows us how God's grace extends even to his enemies. And then I want to look at verses 4, or excuse me, verse 3. And we're going to see how God's grace extends to his own. And then verses 4 and 5 to me are very important in understanding the meaning behind Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Uh, There is symbolism here, and it points to something a lot deeper than just just washing their feet, and I want to talk to you about that. So with verse 2, and how he um, extends grace to his enemies, you know, one of the most profound things about God's grace is that it's not just for his children, and, and that he shows grace even to those who do not believe in him and even to those who hate him. Now, is it a different, is it different? Uh, yes. There is a grace that he shows to his own that he does not show to anybody else. 
It is a saving, redeeming grace that nothing in this world can take away from us. Because God is faithful. Even though we are not faithful, God is faithful. So it is a saving, redeeming grace that he bestows upon us. We don't deserve it, and yet he gives it to us. He gives it to us in full measure, and it's a wonderful thing. But even those who do not believe in him, even those who fight against him, even those who hate him, he shows grace to them as well. And we are told here in verse 2 that during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then it goes on that Jesus started this, this ritual. Now, when you read that, it's obvious that John wants us to know that Judas Iscariot was there when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. In fact, he wants us to know that Jesus not only washed their feet, but he washed Judas Iscariot's feet as well. He also wants us to know that Jesus already knew that Judas would betray him. And yet he washed his feet. John is, is, is he wants us to know that so, so that we can see our Savior at work and we can see God's grace at work in this sinner's life. Now, the one thing I'm reminded about is, is, is just going back a chapter. Remember when Jesus sat down with everybody and he addressed the crowd for the last time in John chapter 12? And remember what he says in verse 35? Now, this was not only for the crowd that was there, but it was also for his disciples and it was also for Judas. And if we go back to John chapter 12, verse 35, this is where Jesus says, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you so Jesus is speaking to the crowd and he is telling them for the last time see me for who I am I am the savior the son of God that he has sent to save the world believe in me trust in me that was his last message again the last presentation of the gospel itself to the crowd before he was arrested, crucified, and buried. Judas was there. He heard those words. And that's the first thing I think of is whenever I read uh, this passage in, in John chapter 13 that, that Judas was already working with the devil at this point. And I think about only if he had responded to Jesus' his plea. Only if he had responded to what Jesus said in John chapter 12. Then he would have saved himself from this heartache and he would have saved himself from everything, the wrath of God being placed on him. It's a tragic thing. And when we look at our passage, it's really tragic because basically our passage lets us know that Judas and the devil were working together. That's exactly what is meant whenever we read verse 2, and it says that when the, it says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. When you look at the Greek in that, it's basically saying, it's communicating that Judas 
and the devil were of one accord. That they were actually working together to destroy Christ. So in other words, while Judas was in cahoots with the devil, and the devil had already put it into his heart to destroy, to, to betray Christ, Christ served him in that capacity. Now, I think it's important for us to see this because the reason why John mentions Judas here is because we all need to see that God's grace is not only given to his children, but it is also bestowed upon those that hate him and those who are his enemies. Um, Matthew, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and I want to read verses 44 through uh, 48 for you in relation to what I'm speaking about right now. This is what Jesus is saying and teaching. He says in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who are in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that was Jesus saying that in Matthew chapter 5, and now we see him practicing it here in John chapter 13. When I read this, it really moves me to, to know that I'm not only here to serve God's own. I'm not only here to serve those who like me, I'm also here to serve those who hate me. I'm here to serve them with the gospel. I'm here to present the gospel to them in hopes that they will see Jesus for who he is and that they will be added unto us. That's exactly the reminder that we need to take away from that verse, that first verse, is that we are to be like God and we are to love our enemies. Now, how useful would this message be in today's society? Where when you turn on the news, you turn on the TV, you turn on Facebook, you turn on Instagram, you turn on Twitter, you turn on anything. And what's dominating the news? Hate. Hate is dominating the news. The only fix for hate is the gospel. It's a changed heart. The only way that's going to happen is we serve those who both love us and serve those who hate us. Second thing, verse 3. We see how God's Grace is extended to those who are his own. 
says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, or had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, and it kind of just stops there, because right after there, verse 4 talks about how he rose, tied tied the towel around his waist, and began to wash their feet. But verse 3 is very important for us to see because when we look at God's grace, another amazing aspect of it is that he not only extends it to those who hate him, he extends his grace to those who do not deserve it. See, I think we don't see ourselves in that capacity. When we talk about us being his children and us being his own, we hold on to that because that sounds good. But the fact is, those who hate him, they don't deserve his grace. But you know what? Those who are his own, us... If you are in Christ, you don't deserve his grace either. You don't deserve his grace because you, before you were saved, you were a sinner just like those who hate him today. In fact, the Bible says that without Christ, we were enemies of God. So in order for us to be in the position that we are today, God had to extend his grace to us and save us as well. So, yes, we are his, but we must recognize that without Christ, as Paul says, we are utterly sinful. So we are his, but we have sin. And even after God has regenerated our hearts, after he has changed us, we still chase after things of the flesh. That's why Paul has to remind us to walk in the spirit every day. Do not walk in the flesh. He says, don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Because if you do, it's just going to lead you to sin. Rather, gratify the desires of the spirit. That's the decision as Christians that we have to make every single day. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Didn't deserve it, but yet he extends and has given us his grace. But also, look at verse 3 again. And as you are reading verse 3, I want you to see the humility of Christ in serving a people who don't deserve to be served. I'm giving time for everybody to read it. Because the humility there is wonderful. The passage communicates that Jesus, that he knew the following. First of all, that the Father had given him all things. Or rather, he had given all things into his hands. Let me ask you a question. If you had been given everything and everything was under your control and everything had been given into your hands, would you be washing people's feet? It's amazing. Scripture says that the Father had given all things into his hands. And here Jesus is. Removing his outer garment, tying it around his waist. Taking the form of a servant. Because that's what servants wore in those days. 
getting on his knees and washing his disciples' feet. He had been given everything. Everything had been given back to him. Not only that, but it continues. Jesus knew he was aware, fully aware of who he was. It wasn't like God sent his son and his son did not know who he was. He knew who he was the whole time. And John wants us to know that. He wants us to know that he had come from God. So he knew who he was. He was the son of God. Everything had been given into his hands. And also pay attention to verse three when it says he knew he was going back to God. So not only did he know who he was, but he knew where he was going. I always say this, the, the most wonderful two days about a job is the first day and the last day. I've moved from one place to another enough to know that it is the first day and the last day. I'm not, I'm not speaking about the church. I don't want our visitors to get the wrong idea that I'm, <laughs> I'm church hopping. I was bivocational for many years before But the first day and the last day, what happens on the last day? The last day you walk in and you're just smiling, you're just, it's your day. And you're just waiting for someone to tell you to do something because you're going to be like, I don't have to do anything, it's my last day, what are you going to do? We kind of get this attitude of, we finished this already, it's kind of time to move on. But Jesus, Jesus is coming to the end of his work, and you don't see that. He's not commanding for the disciples to wash his feet. He's the one who gets on his knees and washes theirs. Jesus knew he would soon receive the glory he had before. And yet... As I said before, he is the one on his knees serving people that don't deserve it. Matthew twenty twenty eight says, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, what Jesus did, he did for the father. And I think it's a great lesson for us. We, we need to learn to serve one another out of reverence for Christ. Not because people deserve it, because I'll tell you right now, no one deserves it. If we are going to be truthful with one another, and we're going to speak on spiritual terms, on true terms, no one deserves it. So don't expect, don't expect to give your service to those who deserve it, because if that were true, you would not be able to serve the Lord. We serve out of reverence for Christ. That's what Ephesians 5.21 tells us too anyway. But now, here's my favorite part, verses 4 and 5. Here's the the spiritual significance of of the passage. And it's it's wonderful because John, he describes it, he uses symbolism to describe the meaning behind what's what's happening in, in the foot washing ceremony. Uh, Verses 4 and 5. Let me read that to you again. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments 
and taken a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel he had wrapped around him. To me, this is the meat, right? This is the meat. I'm the meat and potatoes guy, as you can tell, and this is the meat part of the passage. Now, I want, to, I want you to picture this. The disciples are leaning back. This is what was customary in those days as they, as they ate in fellowship. They're leaning back, and usually they're on their left side, reclining back. Not like, not like us today when we sit around a table and have chairs. These guys are leaning back, reclining, and their feet are in front of them. And uh, they're all enjoying the meal in that fashion. And Jesus, Jesus gets up and he removes his outer garment. Now, I've already told you, when somebody was, would remove their outer garment, that was, that was because they were about to work. And servants in those days did not wear that outer garment. They just wore their work clothes. So for Jesus to be removing that, for a lot of people, if there were people in there, if there were Pharisees in there, they would have said, aha, uh-huh, you see, what you are doing, that is, not, that is not the right thing to do. You'd never remove that because you're not a servant. But Jesus was showing everyone that he came to serve the world. So he gets up, he removes his outer garment and gets a towel and begins to wash their feet. He begins to do work that only a slave would do. Now, not to be overly graphic, but just so that you get a good picture of what was happening here. He was about to wash the disciples' feet. And when we talk about feet in those days, first of all, that, that act was considered unclean. Not only was it unclean, but it was pretty disgusting. Because, I mean, nowadays, when we talk about feet, uh, you know, we, we talk about feet in the sense where people go get pedicures every once in a while. People take care of their feet. They have shoes to wear to protect their feet. So feet are not only functional, but they're, in a sense, I don't know, decorative a little bit. They're well-nourished, well-taken care of. People lotion their feet. But back then, they didn't have anything like that. And even with all the care that we give to our feet, even, even today, feet are not only literally looked down at, but figuratively as well. They're looked down upon. Now, I want you to imagine a person's feet without the, uh, the privileges of today. Imagine a person's feet without the pedicures. A person's feet without shoes and working all day, walking all day. Imagine someone's feet without daily baths. Now you're starting to get the picture. And Jesus, being the Son of God, he had been given all things. He gets on his knees and he begins to wash their feet. Now, the symbolism here is extremely profound. And I think a lot of people miss it. 
I hope you don't miss it today. See, Jesus, being God in the flesh, he took the form of a servant, right? And he washed a sinful people. Listen, that is the gospel. That is the gospel. That's exactly what the gospel communicates. And if this is symbolism, then that means we know who Jesus is. He is the son of God. Well, who are the disciples? I'll tell you, none of us are the disciples. Because that's easy for us to relate to. We could say, oh, I'm Peter. I'm John. I'm Andrew. We can easily say that and we can identify with that. But you know what? I don't even think we're the disciples. You know who we are? In this story, we're the feet. That's who we are. That's a picture of us without Christ. We are the disgusting, dirty, hurting, uncovered feet that Jesus had to wash. that's how ugly our sin is and that's exactly what Jesus did for us that is the power of the gospel that is the truth see unfortunately unfortunately the gospel is not proclaimed like it needs to be and there is a lot of sugarcoating today where people will not say that we are the feet that we're, we, we were just a little bad No, my friends, we weren't just a little bad. The Bible says that we were dead in our transgressions. We needed to be revived. Jesus did that for us. Now, I know that reaction to a sermon like this is not always... I don't know. I I know there's disagreements. I've talked to enough people when I present God and his sovereignty to them, when I present our sinfulness to them, I've talked to enough people to know that there's resistance to that. And I get it. Hey, I get it. I get it because the gospel is not being proclaimed as it should. But let me just give you one example to prove this. And I, I want to make it relevant of what's going on today. Let's talk about racism. Now, bear with me. I just want to use this to to prove my point. How ugly our sin is and how ugly we all are without Christ. And this is extremely hard for me because it's extremely personal. But to the glory of God. I recently took a, a DNA test. For those of you who don't, know my, who don't know my story, my mother had me when she was 21 years old, and my father abandoned us. I was raised by my grandfather. That's why I have the last name Garcia. I was actually raised by my mother my, and my grandparents, excuse me, but I, had his, I was given his last name. And for all these years, I'm 43 now, 
I know that's pretty shocking, right? I look, I look much younger than that, right? I know. Hey, this is what ministry does to you. But for most of my life, I searched for my father, my adult life anyway. And for most of my life, I thought I knew who he was. My mother had told me that he was, uh, yeah, I won't share the name, but it was this gentleman. And here recently, I actually was in contact with his family. He has since passed, but I was in contact with his family. And, and uh, we started talking and trying to figure things out and try to see if he was really my father or not. And in the process of doing all that, I took a DNA test. And my mother had told me that my father was originally, my middle name is Ortiz. That was supposedly, I was, that was being named after my father's last name. So obviously I'm looking for Hispanic male. Took a DNA test and my test came back not too long ago. 37.2 European, 22.6 Native American, 32.5 African. So what does that tell you? My father was not, his last name was not Ortiz. My father was not Mexican-American. My father was black. And you know, when I found out, I laughed. I laughed because my wife can tell you for years on, I mean, we've been talking about this for years and I've, I've had that feeling. Finally took the DNA test and found out. But the reason why I laughed was because I was thinking about my mother. My mother passed away in 2004. So she went to the grave with this secret. And some people might say that being upset was the right response to that. I wasn't upset at all. I laughed because I understood I understood exactly why my mother did what she did. We're going to have an interesting conversation when I get to heaven. I can't wait for that. But I understand she did why she did what she did. She never once told me that he was black. All this information I'm slowly finding out myself. But the reason why she did what she did was to protect me. She wanted to make she wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to have to go through the issues that a black man would have to go through in the late 70s, all through the 80s, all through the 90s. And you know what's profound about that? Listen, my mother wasn't protecting me against just white people. That's, that's the amazing thing about racism is that everybody thinks that it's a white thing. Silly. She wasn't protecting me against white people. Who do you think she was protecting me against? People of my own race. She was protecting me from people within my own family. But you know what? 
all my mom's efforts to protect me, and still it happened. It still happened. You know what? I'm not the only one it happened to in here. Racism happens to everyone. If you're white, I guarantee it's happened to you. If you're brown, it's happened to you. If you're black, it's happened to you. Has it happened to African Americans here in America more than any other? Yeah, I will agree with that, yes. But you see, racism, racism is fueled by what? It's fueled by hate. Hate is the sin. Hate is what breeds racism. That is the issue, and that's what Pastor Laramie, myself, and many others have been trying to get people to see. Listen, the government's not going to fix this for us. And let me tell you right now, blue lives matter is not the fix. Black lives matter is not the fix. All lives matter is not the fix. The only fix to this is Christ. And the gospel. The fact is, is that racism is found in all ethnic groups. Why? Because we are all sinful. Listen to this. As I said, racism comes from the heart. It comes from the hate that we have for others. Why do we hate others? You know why? Because we love ourselves too much. We place ourselves on a pedestal and then that causes us to hate others. And that's why the first commandment is to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart. That's why Jesus says, if you are going to come after me, what? You have to pick up the cross and follow me, right? But before you pick up that cross, he says, you better deny yourself. Yes, racism is found in all ethnic groups because we are all sinful. And all of a sudden on Facebook and other social media platforms, because it's been highlighted so much, guess what everybody is doing? Racism seems to be the struggle of somebody else. But we know if we really looked at ourselves in the mirror, we have all been guilty of that at one point or another in our lives. We have all been guilty of loving ourselves too much and not loving our neighbors as we should. Yes, racism is a horrible thing. It's an ugly sin. You know what it looks like and how ugly it is? It's as ugly as a disciple's feet. And yet Jesus cleaned them. Now listen, that's only one sin. I said I'd give you one example. But look, I haven't talked about not honoring your mother and father as you should. How ugly of a sin that could be. Can I get an amen from the parents? (laughs) 
I haven't talked about being, bearing false witness and lying and how much destruction that causes. That's an ugly sin as well. I haven't talked about adultery and how ugly that is and, and how, how much that has destroyed lives and marriages and families. We've talked about hate already. I haven't talked about coveting. How much that goes on in our lives and why the Apostle Paul says you need to be grateful for what you have. There's a reason why he said that to be content in what God has given you. Don't be coveting everything else. I just gave you an example of hate. But there's so much more. And each of these sins are as, as, as equally horrible as the other. But yet, Jesus cleanses us from all sin. What he did for the disciples, it's telling a story of what he has done for us. That needs to be our reply. Thank the Lord because Jesus claimed to cleanse us not only of that sin, but of all of our sins. And the gospel tells us that we, in order for that to happen, we must come to saving faith. We must repent of our sins. We must confess, confess our faith in him. And the Bible says that we shall be saved. Now, remember I told you God's grace is amazing? That's how I want to end it. I just want us to stand in awe of that. As I look back at my life, it's amazing to see what God has forgiven me for. Guys, I'm, I'm here to tell you I am truly a wretched sinner. And... and there's no theatrics behind it. I am truly a wretched sinner. I don't deserve the things that I have. I don't deserve to even be up here speaking to you. It is only by the grace of God that I am who I am. And that is true for everybody in here. Let us pray.